0: And because it's Orphan Care Sunday, I'd like to do something a little different. I thought I would give us an overview of the biblical doctrine of sonship, which is very much related to adoption. As we will see, sonship is a very important biblical theme that impacts our salvation in multiple places. It's a theme that is seen across the biblical narrative, and it's a scene that is very impactful in our day-to-day life. It's a very practical doctrine. So tonight I'll be looking at various different texts, and I'll be examining the doctrine from the perspective of church history, briefly, Uh, for those history buffs here, I know that'll make you happy. Uh, I'll be looking at it from the biblical text, and looking at it from theological angles, and looking at it from very practical angles. So before I begin, let me pray for us that God will bless our time. Our Father in heaven, it is indeed a great privilege to be able to speak to you as Our Father, and not merely the Father in heaven. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes, that you would illumine the text tonight, that we might see more clearly the beauty that is found in the gift of sonship that we have through our elder brother, Jesus Christ. It is in his name that I pray. Amen. I've had the privilege of being able to study the doctrine of sonship in good detail, and I was surprised to find how neglected it has been throughout church history. In fact, sonship was almost entirely not talked about until the Protestant Reformation. They had important things to hammer out in the early church and in the medieval church, but it wasn't until John Calvin was one of the first theologians to make it a major emphasis Uh, In his work, The Institutes, it is a fundamental element of his interpretive framework. But even after Calvin, theologians very much neglected the doctrine of sonship or adoption. For example, Francis Turretin, the great Genevan reformer, collapsed adoption entirely underneath the doctrine of justification. And many others in the Reformed tradition follow him in that regard. Louis Berkhof does the same thing. It almost makes adoption kind of a side effect of, of justification. They'll even use language of it's the other side of the coin of justification. Charles Hodge, the Princeton um, theologian from the 1800s, wrote three volumes of systematic theology, 2,000 pages, and he mentioned the word adoption one time in 2,000 pages. Uh, of honorable mention is the work of James Boyce, James P. Boyce, who founded Southern Seminary. He, in his abstract of theology, was helpfully critical of other theologians on the issue, but he was certainly in the minority. Thankfully, in the last generation, there has been uh, a change in this trend. Uh, J.I. Packer wrote a wonderful book called Knowing God that I commend to all of you. And in it, he says, were I asked to focus the whole New Testament message into three words, my proposal would be adoption through propitiation. And I do not expect ever to meet a richer and more pregnant summary of the gospel than that, adoption through propitiation. There has been, thankfully, because of J.I. Packer and Sinclair Ferguson and others, a um, renewed emphasis in the doctrine of sonship or adoption. And so much of what I have to say tonight is built upon their work. So let's dig into what the Bible says about this oft neglected doctrine. I want us to see tonight that sonship is a key concept within the whole scope of redemption. God has chosen among many possibilities the idea of sonship through adoption as a key way both to demonstrate and to illustrate his lavish love and his grace poured out upon his chosen ones. And this sonship is a theme that is key both textually and within the realm of biblical Theology. So let's look first at textually. Sonship is a key theme textually. When you think about New Testament passages that deal with our salvation, passages like Ephesians 1, Romans chapter 8, Galatians chapter 3 and 4, Hebrews chapter 2, each one of these has sonship as a key theme. In Ephesians 1, we are told that God predestined us for adoption to himself. As sons through Jesus Christ. In Romans 8, we're told that those who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. And that we do not have a spirit of fear, but a spirit of adoption. That bears testimony with our spirit that we are indeed sons of the Father. Galatians 3 and 4, we're told that God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And in Hebrews 2, we're told that it is fitting that God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make our founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. So one of the reasons that God sent Christ on his redemptive mission was to bring many sons to glory. Sonship is a key textual theme in many passages related to our salvation. But it's not merely a theme textually. It's a key theme in terms of biblical theology, in terms of the whole scope of redemptive history, the whole grand narrative of the Bible. Sonship is the focus of creation. In Genesis, there is a debate that theologians have about whether or not Adam was a son by creation or he would have been a son after a certain period of obedience. And I'm not going to get into that. I want us to rather... Notice how the text indicates that Adam was a son and Adam was to be a son. For example, uh, Luke 3.38 in the genealogy of Jesus clearly calls Adam a son of God. But Adam was also to be a son. He was to act as a son. That's part of what is assumed in the language of image. Genesis 1.26 and later Genesis five two and 3 show us that Adam and his sons were made in the image of God, and part of being made in that image is acting like our Father. God placed little images, little vice regents, little rulers to bear His image and to spread His glory throughout the created order. Sonship was built into the very fabric of creation. But sonship is also a pattern of redemption, When God's people were enslaved to the Egyptians, God calls Moses and he charges him to deliver a message. It's recorded for us in Exodus chapter 4. God says to Moses, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my people go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Israel was God's son. Israel was chosen to be God's very son, a chosen nation to receive his holy inheritance. That's why throughout the Old Testament, we see language of God and his fatherly care. Jeremiah 31, 9, God says, I am a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn son. We see God discipline Israel as a son. God takes those that cannot help themselves and he adopts them and makes them their own and brings them under his loving care and provides guidance for them. Sonship is a pattern of redemption throughout the Old Testament. But sonship is also the purpose of restoration. Sonship is the purpose of restoration. Romans 8 chapter or excuse me chapter 8 verse 29 explains to us that those whom God foreknew He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be firstborn among many brothers. Christ was never meant to be an only child. Why were we predestined? Why Why are we made more and more into the image of Christ? One reason is so that Christ might be the older brother of many, many siblings. That He might be the firstborn of many brothers. And this is also why Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, can speak in terms of brothers and in terms of household of God in Hebrews chapter 10. You see, Christ, our older brother, has once and for all made a sacrifice that purifies and that provides forgiveness for the whole household of God. Even his younger brothers who got into so much trouble. Sonship is a purpose of our restoration. In God's wisdom... He has chosen sonship as a key theme in terms of biblical theology and has demonstrated in various ways across the grand drama of redemption how he is making for himself many sons. So we've seen that sonship is a major doctrine texturally and within the scope of redemptive history. Now let's look at some practical implications of the doctrine of sonship. We can look first at the marks of sonship. If, if you were like me, when you went to college, you were subjected to an introductory psychology course um, and the seemingly endless debate about nature versus nurture, about nature versus environment, your upbringing. Well, the New Testament emphasizes both of those aspects as it relates to our sonship, both our nature and our environment. And the two authors of the New Testament that speak most about sonship or adoption Emphasize both of these aspects of our sonship: our new nature as sons of God and our new environment uh, as part of the household of God. John speaks more of our nature as regenerated, born again sons of God. Paul speaks more of our legal status as adopted sons into God's household. And so, let's look at the marks of sonship, particularly as expressed through John and through Paul. We'll start with John. Turn with me to First John, John's first letter. First John, we'll see some marks of sonship that arise from our new nature. First John chapter 5. In First John chapter 5 we'll see that sonship is characterized by a changed relationship to Christ. Sonship is characterized by a changed relationship to Christ. First John chapter five verse thirteen. Nope, that's not the right verse. Where is it? Oh, verse Verse one. Chapter five, verse one. Sorry? 1 John 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Do you see the connection that he's making there between believing and being born again? They go together, the mind and the new birth. Theologians might say that regeneration, that being born again, has a noetic effect upon us. That is, it changes our mind, how we think. You can read later John chapter 3 and see the connection as well. The doctrine of regeneration or new birth is taught within the context of faith in Jesus Christ. The two go together. You believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the chosen son of God, that he is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one sent by the Father. And when you are made a son of God, you also believe, rather than remain like a child of the world that disbelieves that Jesus is the Christ. They do not believe it. They do not want to believe it. Sonship is characterized by a changed relationship to Christ. Notice also that sonship is characterized by a changed relationship to sin. Flip back to chapter 3 of 1 John. Chapter 3, verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Skip down to verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep sinning because he has been born of God. Being born of God means being born of a new nature. A nature that necessarily produces radical cleavage from our sin patterns of our old nature. The believer will continue, of course, to sin, but he will not like it. He will hate it. He will be revolted by it. He will not wallow in it. He will battle against it and will do all of this in a way that is fundamentally distinct from how he battled against sin, if at all, in his previous nature. The old nature reveled in sin. It wallowed in it. It enjoyed it. But the new nature, a nature born of the Spirit and not of flesh, will not enjoy those sins and will, in fact, act in a manner consistent with our new nature. Our divine heredity will come into play. Those born of God will, by nature, begin to act like God. God's sons are characterized by a changed relationship to sin. Third, we'll see that sonship is characterized by a changed relationship to the church. Look at chapter 4 in 1 John. Chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever has been born of God knows God and knows God. Love is Love for one another is grounded in our common new birth. God has made us to be born again, and because of that shared new life and our new nature, we ought to love one another. And John makes clear, furthermore, that this love is a practical love. It's not merely a verbal love. It's not merely lip service to loving one another. In chapter 2, verse 10, in chapter 3, verse 4, chapter 3, 17 and 18, all speak to this. He says, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Our new nature as God's sons means that our love must evidence itself in deeds and not merely in talk. Furthermore, chapter 4, verses 11 and 12 show us that love for the brothers is a mark of our maturing in our new birth. It says, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. It is made complete in us. Maturing Christians will see a growing love for their siblings in the household of God which is evidence of God's love being perfected in us. When we are made sons of God, we have a fundamental change in our relationship to the church, to our fellow sons of God, which results in physical, tangible demonstrations of love to our new family members in the household of God. Sonship changes our relationship with the church. Fourth, we can see that sonship is characterized by a changed relationship to the world. A changed relationship to the world. Chapter 5, verse 4 in 1 John. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Faith. In John sixteen thirty three, Christ tells us that He has overcome the world. And it is through faith, through our new birth, that we, sons of God, become also victors, conquerors, overcomers of the world. Not because of our own strength, not because of what we have done, but because of our older brother, who is the firstborn among many brothers, indeed, of many conquerors, of many overcomers. We have a changed relationship to the world when we realize our sonship. So we've seen in John, we have, through our sonship, a changed relationship to Christ. Changed relationship to sin, to the church, and to the world. Now, let's look at what Paul says. Paul is the only author in the New Testament to use the language of adoption to speak of our sonship. He's not talking about something different, but re- merely looking at it from a different angle. He emphasizes more the legal and the relationship, relational aspects of our sonship as opposed to John, who emphasized the natural aspects of our sonship. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. The first mark of sonship that I want us to see in Paul is that we are to walk in the light. As sons, we are called to walk in the light. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 8 says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are in the light of the Lord. Walk as children of the light. He says similarly in 1 Thessalonians 5 5, We are all children of light, children of the day. We are no longer children of the darkness, of the night. We should walk, therefore in a manner consistent with our new status. You see, our new status as adopted sons of God has removed from us any bit of darkness from the world, has brought us into the light. Everything that belonged to the orphan previously has been taken by the Father, and everything that was the Father's has been made us, made to us, and given to us as sons. Our debts Our liabilities, our weaknesses, our allegiances, our old bondages and slaveries are gone. Taken by the Father, legally declared to be disrupted. And all the rights and privileges of that Father are passed on to us. The position, the status, the rank, the inheritance, the future, the blessings, everything that the Father has, has been given to us. In Christ, There is no reason to go back to the darkness. There's nothing in there that can help us, nothing that would make our life sweeter, nothing that will will fill our hearts. There's no reason to leave the household of light and to wander down the dark paths of sin again. God's adoptive children ought to have the mark of sonship that they walk in the light where their heavenly Father is. A second mark of sonship that we see in Paul is that since we are sons of the Father, we ought to be imitators. Of the Father. Sons imitate their fathers. Which is terrifying for sinful fathers like myself. But sons imitate their fathers. Ephesians 5 verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. As beloved children. We are children of God and it is in our nature to imitate our Father. Just like our children naturally imitate us. We're filled with His very Spirit. And we ought to walk in a manner as He walks, imitating His every move. It was startling to see, as my children got a little bit older, how much they imitate me. And they do this naturally. They often don't even think about it. They don't consciously choose, I think Dad's way is the best way of doing things, so I'm going to do it the way he does, as opposed to these other things. Possibly valid options. No, they just do what their father does. It's part of the air that they breathe. It's in their environment. So that's what they do. And Paul is encouraging us here to breathe in the very environment that God is making around you. As his child, do this as my beloved children. You are in a new household. Part of the household of God. Act like your father acts. Behave like your family behaves. Paul is encouraging us that one of the marks of sonship is that we should be imitators of God. Before we move from the marks of sonship to the privileges of sonship, I want to first discuss a few practical benefits of this doctrine of sonship. What are some practical benefits? What are some repercussions in our everyday life of this consciousness that we have been made through Christ to be sons of God? of our eternal heavenly father. Well, this knowledge that we are sons of God produces within us a profound sense of security. A profound sense of security. And this might be something that you've never experienced before with your natural father, but it comes from your heavenly father in Christ. We see in natural sonship how insecurity can exist. Those people that do not know who their father is or have a poor father, a bad example of a father, wrestle with insecurity, sometimes for their whole lives. But in Christ, it need not be so. We have profound security because of the doctrine of sonship. We know that we have been adopted by a faithful father and that this adoption is final. There is nothing that we can do that will change our legal status as full sons of the Father. We are sons by verdict and sons by new birth. We are secure as sons of the Father and as younger brothers to Christ as our older brother is, the firstborn of many brothers. We cannot be rejected. We are secure because of our sonship. We also see that being sons of God produces within us a sense of direction. Produces within us a sense of direction. Christ said, Did you not know that I must be about my Father's business? Well, we can make the same claim. I must be about my Father's business. We see the Father in the face of Christ. And when we see the Father in His business, we know that we can follow Him in His trade. And I don't mean being a, a plumber or an electrician or a teacher or a lawyer or anything else. I'm talking about whatever you do in life. You are called to be about the Father's business. To act as our Holy Father calls us to act. To love as our Holy Father calls us to love. To speak as our Holy Father calls us to speak. And this is true being about the Father's business in a global sense. I mean, the God is about the business of revealing his own glory and our chief end our goal is to glorify god and enjoy him forever but it's also true in a moral sense we see god in the business of righteousness and of holiness and so we should follow him in the family business of righteousness and holiness third the knowledge that we are sons of god not only produces security and direction but it produces moral fiber in our lives it gives us strength, it gives us courage. This knowledge of sonship gives us steadfastness that can be found nowhere else. To contradict our new nature as adopted, reborn sons of God, to, to sin is in one sense the hardest thing in the world for us to do. Why would I sin against my perfect heavenly Father? How, how could I do that? We feel it. and we, f- we hate it. We feel the gravity of it. We battle against it. We, we deep down in our very own spirit, we hate it. We hate that sin. But we can be steadfast and courageous in our daunting battle for holiness because we know that we are sons of God and that we have been given the very Spirit of God and that we are forever members of His family. He will not let us go. We are members of His family. And we can fight hard against the remaining sin in our lives. Against the world and the devil. Because we have our Heavenly Father by our side. Watching over us and protecting us. Which is related to what I'd like to talk about next. The privileges of sonship. So we've been adopted into God's family. What are the privileges? There's got to be some perks that come with being in God's house, right? What are those privileges. Well, see, the first one is God's fatherly care for us. Because we've been adopted, we've been given the privilege of God's fatherly care. We have been brought into his very own household and he has promised to take care of us. He has promised to take care of us. This is the remedy for anxiety in our lives. We can be courageous instead of anxious because of our sonship. We know that if God, the God of the universe, is our Father, what in the world could happen that is outside of His control? Nothing. What could we possibly lack that we genuinely need? Nothing. He will provide it for us. What protection do we need that is not available to us? None. Jesus tells us to look at the lilies of the field, how beautiful they are, and yet they are gone in a moment. If He cares for those lilies... How much more will He care for us, the very sons and daughters of God? He knows the number of very, the very number of hairs on your head. We don't have to worry that He is ignorant of our needs or that He is impotent to tend to them. We can have courage rather than anxiety in this life because of the privilege of God's fatherly care for us. We also have a second privilege, and that is access to the Father. Sonship grants us access to the Father. When Adam sinned, he lost access to the very Father with whom he had walked side by side in the garden. He was shut out, separated because of his sin, alienated from God and His holiness. And that separation was highlighted by the law in the Old Testament. We see it in the separation of the Holy of Holies in the temple. God was separated from His people by a curtain, a visible reminder... That you cannot be with God. You cannot access God on your own. But our sonship now means that we have direct access to the Father. Ephesians 2 makes clear that we who were once far off have been brought near. We have access to the Father again. We have a relationship with Him again. A relationship that was once severed because of Adam, and because of his sin, and because of our sin, but it is now restored to us, giving us access once again to our Heavenly Father. Indeed, it is because of our sonship, because of this access, that Jesus could teach us to pray, not the Father who is in heaven, but our Father who is in heaven. Our sonship is our possession, and our access to the Father is real. It is direct. It is legally binding. It is also relational. And it is unbreakable. Access to the Father is a second privilege of our sonship. Third privilege is the knowledge of Jesus Christ as our big brother and our kinsman redeemer. A third privilege is Jesus, is the knowledge of Jesus Christ as our big brother and our kinsman redeemer. Redeemer. This is not the only aspect of Jesus's work on the cross, but it is an important role as a older brother and as our kinsman Redeemer. This is uh, language from the Old Testament. You see, in the Old Testament, when someone was without a protector, without a provider, like if a woman's husband died and she had no sons to care for her, she would be without a, without a provider. Someone from the family would step up and would provide for her a future. This kinsman redeemer would redeem her from a life of poverty, of bondage to poverty. A life of scavenging and panhandling for food and for survival. Christ has come and been our kinsman redeemer. He has come in and purchased us from bondage to slavery. He has redeemed us from poverty and from the previous life of sin and death. And He has given us inheritance. The inheritance of His very own household. We've been made not only redeemed ones, but have been made sons, co-heirs with Christ, fully and legally promised the inheritance of Christ Himself. That's the privilege of our sonship, to have the knowledge of Christ, not only as our elder brother, but as our kinsman redeemer. A fourth privilege is the reception of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of adoption. A fourth privilege is the reception of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of adoption. In Romans chapter 8, you can read of this glorious news of our adoption, of our being made sons of God through the merit of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. It says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We have the privilege of the Holy Spirit of adoption that testifies with our spirit that we are sons of God. We have not been left alone as orphans. We have been given God's very own spirit. Because of our sonship, we have the privileges of God's fatherly care. We have access to the Father. We have the knowledge of Christ as our older brother and kinsman redeemer. And we have the privilege of the Spirit of adoption. The last thing I want us to see is the source of our sonship. The source of our sonship. You'd think I'd want to begin that, begin there with the source, but I want to end here because this is where the the nectar of this doctrine really derives its sweetness. The source of our sonship. The sh- the short answer is that the source of our sonship is God Himself, and particularly. God the Father. Our sonship has its root in the love of God the Father. Much of Roman adoption, which is the legal term that Paul used, was done out of profit or convenience for the one doing the adopting. It was somehow in my best interest for the adopter to take in the adopted one. It was legal, but it was in no way often emotional, relational, and it was certainly not spiritual. But God's adoption is not so. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. God's adoption was not out of profit, not out of convenience. In fact, it was quite the opposite. It was entirely out of grace and love, and it was at great cost. It was the love of the Father that motivated Him to make us sons. We had no inherent value on our own. We had no profit to add to His fortune. We had no convenience to add to His lifestyle and no prestige to add to His reputation. Instead, we are only the beneficiaries of His great love. See what kind of love the Father has for us. Literally, what size or what manner of love the Father has for us. This is the verse that ought to reverberate throughout our lives. And do you see the logic that undergirds this verse? People might naturally reason this way. We might say, if God is your father, then you must be God's son. But that's not what's underneath this verse. No, John's logic is, if you are God's son, then God has lavished his love upon you to make you his son. And his deepest desire for you is that you should believe and that you should be one... Believe the truth that He is a Father that loves His Son. He loves you. That's what John is telling us. If you are God's Son, it is because God loves you immensely. See what kind of love the Father has for us. And this is the truth. The love of the Father that I want us to end with tonight. Because it was the first thing that was really attacked in the garden. When the serpent was questioning Adam and he said, Did God really say... He's getting Adam to question the character of the Father. Don't you see that the Father is keeping something from you? He wants to withhold something from you, something good, something that you deserve. Don't you see that the Father really doesn't love you? If he loved you, then he would give you this fruit that looks so good, it looks so desirable to eat. But he mustn't love you because he didn't give it to you. That's what Satan is saying, God doesn't love you. That same lie was taught by the Pharisees as well. If you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 15, I'm going to look at the parable of the prodigal son. It's a well known parable. Luke chapter 15. I'm going to begin in verse 21. This is where the prodigal son begins to come to his senses. Luke 15, starting in verse 21. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He's saying, Father, I have sinned against you. And I have sinned so bad, I rejected you. I merely wanted your money. It was as if you were dead to me. I just want to spend your money. And I have forfeited my right to be called a son. Let me just be a slave. Let me just work on my hands and knees in your household. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, he saw, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and let us celebrate. For my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. We often struggle in our lives to really believe that God loves us ...like this father does. We know that we have sinned... ...and we feel the weight of our frivolous lives... ...our frivolous sins... ...and we merely want to come back... ...and be servants in the household of God. God, just, just let me be a slave. Just, just let me come in. But our father won't have that. He won't let you merely be a slave. He comes back to us like the father in this story... ...who has tears streaming down his face... ...and he grabs his brother... His son, excuse me. He wraps his arms around him. But notice also the older brother's reaction. Which is especially striking when laid beside the response of the prodigal son. The older brother responds in verse 29. And I like the NIV's translation the best. It says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. And I have never once disobeyed your orders. The older brother says, I've been slaving for you. That's the heart of an unconverted man, a man who only has a natural birth and who has not been reborn and made a son of God. The younger brother was prepared to be a slave for the father, to be as miserable as the older brother is. But the father responds to that prodigal and he says, Son, I love you. I want you. I welcome you. I weep over you. Let's put this older brother's response next to the verse we read earlier in First John. The older brother says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I've been slaving for you. First John chapter 3 verse 1. Look at the amazing love that the Father has bestowed upon us. That's the difference between a child of God and a natural man. The child of God marvels at the lavish love that the Father has shown him. But the natural man, the man of the world, sees only his efforts and can't get past them to see the loving God that offers him genuine sonship. That offer remains for all of us tonight. If you have not become a child of God by faith in Him, faith in the Son of God, then I urge you tonight to hear these texts. To see the love of the Father who bids you to come home and to know that He stands willing to invite you back into His arms. Willing to bring you into His household and make you part of the family forever. To slaughter the fatted calf and wrap you in the righteousness of Christ Himself. And for those of us who have been born of God, we have before us one of the highest privileges of a son of God. To dine at the Lord's table. We have been brought out of death, out of slavery, into God's house, into full sonship, full access to the Father, full access to His table, seated right next to our elder brother who is at the right hand of the Father. We have the right to dine with our very Father, the Creator of the universe, and enjoy fellowship with Him forever. This table is reserved only for those who have been made a part of the household of God. If you are like those we read about in Acts chapter 2 who are devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayers, if you're joined to a local church and following Christ in obedience, then you are invited to come. But if you have not joined a church and you're, or you're not in good standing, then I warn you to let these elements pass. First, go to the Father. Be reconciled to Him by faith in Christ. Become a son of God and then join us at the table. Come sit with our elder brother. So as our servants come, let us reflect upon the lavish love of the Father that has been poured out for us in Christ, bringing us into the very household of God and adopting us as the very sons of God. Servants, please come.